Book 9, Part 3 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Drew Alchel. Metamorphoses by Publius Sovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 9, Part 3. Cyane, who was known to be the daughter of the stream Meander, which with many a twist and turn flows wandering there, Cyane said to be indeed most beautiful when known by him, gave birth to two, a girl called Biblis, who was lovely, and the brother Caunus, twins. Biblis is an example that the love of every maiden must be within law. Seized with a passion for her brother, she loved him, descendant of Apollo, not as sister loves a brother, not in such a manner as the law of man permits. At first she, she thought it surely was not wrong to kiss him passionately, while her arms were thrown around her brother's neck, and so deceived herself. And, as the habit grew, her sister love degenerated, till richly attired she came to see her brother, with all endeavors to attract his eye. And anxious to be seen most beautiful, she envied every woman who appeared of rival beauty. But she did not know or understand the flame hot in her heart, though she was agitated when she saw the object of her swiftly growing love. Now she began to call him Lord, and now she hated to say brother, and she said, Do call me Biblis, never call me sister. And yet while feeling love so, when awake she does not dwell upon impure desire, but when dissolved in the soft arms of sleep, she sees the very object of her love, and blushing, dreams she is embraced by him, to slumber has departed. For a time she lies there silent, as her mind recalls the loved appearance of her lovely dream, until her wavering heart in grief exclaims, What is this vision of the silent night? Ah, wretched me, I cannot count it true. And if he were not my own brother, he why is my fond heart tortured with this dream? He is so handsome even to envious eyes. It is not strange he has filled my fond heart so surely would be worthy of my love. But it is my misfortune I am his own sister. Let me therefore strive, awake, to stand with honor, but let sleep return the same dream often to me. There can be no fear of any witness to a shade which phantoms my delight. O Cupid, swift of love-wing with your mother, and O oh, my beloved Venus, wonderful the joys of my experience in the transport! all as if reality sustaining lifted me up to elysian pleasure while in truth i lay dissolving to my very marrow the pleasure was so brief and night headlong sped from me envious of my coming joys if i could change my name and join to you how good a daughter i would prove to your dear father and how good a son would you be to my father if the gods agreed then everything would be possessed by us in common but this must exclude ancestors. For I should pray, compared with mine, yours might be quite superior. But, O oh my love, some other woman by your love will be a mother. But because, unfortunate, my parents are the same as yours, you must be nothing but a brother. Sorrows, then, shall be to us in common from this hour. What have my night-born vision signified? What weight have dreams? Do dreams have any weight? The gods forbid, the gods have sisters. Truth declares even Saturn married Ops, his own blood kin, Oceanus his Tethys, 
Jove, Olympian, his Juno. But the gods are so superior in their laws, I should not measure human custom by the rights established in the actions of divinities. This passion must be banished from my heart, or if it cannot be so, I must pray that I may perish and be laid out dead upon my couch, so my dear brother there may kiss my lips. But then he must consent, and my delight would seem to him a crime. Tis known the sons of Aeolus embrace their sisters. But why should I think of these? Why should I take example from such lies? Must I do as they did? Far from it. Let such lawless flames be quenched, until I feel no evil lore for him, although the pure affection of a sister may be mine and cherished. If it should have happened first that my dear brother had loved me, ah, then I might have yielded love to his desire. Why not now? I myself must woo him, since I could not have rejected him if he had first wooed me. But it is possible for me to speak of it with proper words describing such a strange confession? Love will certainly compel and give me speech. But if shame seal my lips, then secret flame in a sealed letter may be safely told. You might have knowledge of my wounded heart, because my pale, drawn face, and downcast eyes so often tearful, and my sighs without apparent cause have shown it, and my warm embraces, and my frequent kisses, much too tender for a sister. All of this has happened, while with agitated heart, and in hot passion, I have tried all ways. I call upon the gods to witness it, that I might force myself to sanity. And I have struggled, wretched nights and days, to overcome the cruelties of love, too dreadful for a frail girl to endure, for they most surely are all Cupid's art. I have been overborne, and must confess my passion, while with timid prayers I plead, for only you can save me. You alone may now destroy the one who loves you best, so you must choose what will be the result. The one who prays is not your enemy, but one most closely joined to you, yet asked to knit the tie more firmly. Let old men be governed by propriety, and talk of what is right and wrong, and hold to all the nice distinctions of strict laws. But love has no fixed law for those whose age is ours, is heedless and compliant, and we have not yet discovered what is right or wrong, and all we should do is to imitate the known example of the gods. We have no father's harsh rule, and we have no care for reputation and no fear that keeps us from each other. But there may be cause for fear, and we may hide our stolen love, because a sister is at liberty to talk with her dear brother, quite apart. We may embrace and kiss each other, though in public. What is wanting? Pity her whose utmost love compels her to confess, and let it not be written on her tomb. Her death was for your sake, and love denied. Here, when she dropped the tablet from her hand, it was so full of fond words, which were doomed to disappointment, that the last line traced the edge, and without thinking of delay, she stamped the shameful letter with her seal, and moistened it with tears. Her tongue failed her for moisture. Then, hot blushing, she called one of her attendants, and with timid voice said, coaxing, My most trusted servant! Take these tablets to my... 
and after a long delay she said, My brother. While she gave the tablets, they suddenly slipped from her hands and fell. Although disturbed by this bad omen, she still sent the letter, which the servant found an opportunity to carry off. He gave the sacred love confession. This her brother, grandson of Meander, read but partly, and with sudden passion threw the tablets from him. He could barely hold himself from clutching on the throat of her fear-trembling servant, as, enraged, he cried, Accursed pander to forbidden lusts be gone, before the knowledge of your death is added to this unforeseen disgrace. The servant fled in terror, and told all her brother's actions and his fierce reply to Biblis, and when she had heard her love had been repulsed, her startled face went pale, and her whole body trembled in the grip of ice chills. Quickly as her mind regained its usual strength, her maddening love returned, came back with equal force, and while she choked with her emotion, gasping, she said this, I suffer only from my folly. Why did I so rashly tell him of my wounded heart? And why did I so hastily commit to the tablets all I should have kept concealed? I should have edged my way by feeling first, obscurely hinting, till I knew his mind and disposition toward me. And so that my first voyage might get favorable wind, I should have tested with close reeled sail, and, knowing what the wind was, safely fared. But now, with sails full spread, I have been tossed by unexpected winds, and so my ship is on the rocks, and overwhelmed with all the power of ocean. I have not the strength to turn back and recover what is lost. Surely clear omens warned me not to tell my love so soon, because the tablets fell just when I would have put them in the hand of my pick servant. Certainly a sign my hasty hopes were destined to fall down. Is it not clear I should have changed the day, and even my intention? Rather say, should not the day have been postponed at once? The god himself gave me unerring signs if I had not been so deranged with love. I should have spoken to him, face to face, and with my own lips have confessed it all, and then my passion had been seen by him, and as my face was bathed in tears, I could have told him so much more than my words engraved on tablets, and while I was telling him I could have thrown my arms around his neck, and if rejected could have seemed almost at point of death, as I embraced his feet while prostrate even might have begged for life. I could have tried so many plans, and they together would have won his stubborn heart. Perhaps my stupid servant, in mistake, did not approach him at a proper time, and even sought an hour his mind was full of other things. All this has harmed my case. There is no other reason. He was not born of a tigress, and his heart is not of flint or solid iron or of adamant, and no she-lion suckled him. He shall be one to my affection, and I must attempt again, again, nor ever cease so long as I have breath. If it were not too late already to undo what has been done, twere wiser not begun at all. But since I have begun, it now is best to end it with success. How can he help remembering what I dared, although I should abandon my design? In such a case, because I gave up, I must be to him weak, fickle-minded, or perhaps he may believe I tried to tempt him with a snare.
but come what may, he will not think of me as overcome by some god who inflames and rules the heart. He surely will believe I was so actuated by my lust. If I do nothing more, my innocence is gone forever. I have written him and wooed him also, in a way so rash and unmistakable, that if I should do nothing more than this, I should be held completely guilty in my brother's sight. But I have hope, and nothing worse to fear. Then back and forth she argues, and so great is her uncertainty, she blames herself for what she did, and is determined just as surely to succeed. She tries all arts, but is repeatedly repulsed by him, until unable to control her ways, her brother in despair fled from the shame of her designs, and in another land he founded a new city. Then, they say, the wretched daughter of Miletus lost control of reason. She wrenched from her breast her garments, and quite frantic, beat her arms, and publicly proclaims unhallowed love. Grown desperate, she left her hated home, her native land, and followed the loved steps of her departed brother. Just as those crazed by Orthrysus, son of Semele, the bacchanals of Ismarus, aroused, howl at your orgies, so her shrieks were heard by the shocked women of Bubapsus, where the frenzied Biblis howled across the fields, and so through Caria and through Lycia, over the mountains Cragus and beyond the town Limira, and with the flowing stream called Xanthus, and the ridge where dwelt Chimera, serpent-tailed and monstrous beast, fire-breathing from its lion-headed neck, she hurried through the forest of that ridge, and there, at last worn out, with your pursuit, O Biblis, you fell prostrate, with your hair spread over the hard ground, and your wan face buried in fallen leaves. Although the young, still tender-hearted nymphs of Legeles advised her fondly how to cure her love, and offered comfort to her heedless heart, and even lifted her in their soft arms without an answer, Biblis fell from them, and clutched the green herbs with her fingers, while her tears continued to fall on the grass. They say the weeping naiads gave to her a vein of tears which always flows there from her sorrows. Nothing better could be done. Immediately as drops of pitch drip forth from the gashed pine, or stickly bitumen distills out of the rich and heavy earth, or as the frozen water at the approach of a soft-breathing wind melts in the sun, so Biblis, sad descendant of the sun, dissolving in her own tears, was there changed into a fountain, which to this day in all those valleys has no name but hers, and issues underneath a dark oak tree. The tale of this unholy passion would perhaps have filled Crete's hundred cities then, if Crete had not a wonder of its own to talk of, in the change of Iphis. Once there lived at Phaestus, not far from the town of Knossus, a man Ligdus, not well known, in fact obscure, of humble parentage, whose income was no greater than his birth. But he was held trustworthy, and his life had been quite blameless. When the time drew near his wife should give birth to a child, he warned her and instructed her with words we quote, There are two things which I would ask of heaven, that you may be delivered with small pain, and that your child may surely be a boy. Girls are such trouble, fair strength is denied to them. Therefore, may heaven refuse the thought, if chance should cause your child to be a girl, God's pardon me for having said the word, we must agree to have her put to death. 
And all the time he spoke such dreaded words, their faces were completely bathed in tears, not only hers, but also his, while he forced on her that unnatural command. Ah, Telethusa ceaselessly implored her husband to give way to fortune's cast, but Ligdus held his resolution fixed. And now the expected time of birth was near, when in the middle of the night she seemed to see the goddess Isis standing by her bed, in company of serious spirit forms. Isis had crescent horns upon her forehead, and a bright garland made of golden grain encircled her fair brow. It was a crown of regal beauty, and beside her stood the dog Anubis and Bubastis, there the sacred dappled Apis, and the god of silence with pressed finger on his lips. The sacred rattles were there, and Osiris, known the constant object of his worshipper's desire, and there the Egyptian serpent, whose quick sting gives long-enduring sleep. She seemed to see them all, and even to hear the goddess say to her, O Telethusa, one of my remembered worshippers, forget your grief. Your husband's orders need not be obeyed, and when Lucina has delivered you, save and bring up your child, if either boy or girl. I am the goddess who brings help to all who call upon me, and you shall never complain of me that you adored a thankless deity. So she advised, by vision were the sad mother, and left her. The Cretan woman joyfully arose from her sad bed, and supplicating, raised ecstatic hands up towards the listening stars, and prayed to them her vision might come true. Soon, when her pains gave birth, the mother knew her infant was a girl. The father had no knowledge of it, as he was not there. Intending to deceive, the mother said, Feed the dear boy. All things had favored her deceit. No one except the trusted nurse knew of it. And the father paid his vows and named the child after its grandfather, whose name was Honored Iphis. Hearing it so called, the mother could not but rejoice, because her child was given a name of common gender, and she could use it with no more deceit. She took good care to dress it as a boy, and either as a boy or girl its face must always be accounted lovable. And so she grew, ten years and three had gone, and then your father found a bride for you, O Iphis, promised you should take to wife the golden-haired Ianthe, praised by all the women of Phaestus for the dower of her unequalled beauty, and well known, the daughter of a Cretan named Telestes. Of equal age and equal loveliness, they had received from the same teachers all instruction in their childish rudiments. So unsuspected love had filled their hearts with equal longing. But how different! Ianthe waits in confidence and hope the ceremonial is agreed upon, and is quite certain she will wed a man. But Iphis is in love without one hope of passion's ecstasy, the thought of which only increased her flame. And she, a girl, is burnt with passion for another girl. She hardly can hold back her tears, and says, Oh, what will be the awful dreaded end, with such a monstrous love compelling me? If the gods should wish to save me, certainly they should have saved me. But if their desire was for my ruin, still they should have given some natural suffering of humanity. The passion for a cow does not inflame a cow. No mare has ever sought another mare. The ram inflames the ewe, and every doe follows a chosen stag. So also birds are mated, and in all the animal world no female ever feels love passion for another female. Why is it in me? Monstrosities are natural to Crete, 
the daughter of the sun there loved the bull. It was a female's love for the male, but my desire is far more mad than hers. In strict regard of truth, for she had hope of love's fulfillment, she secured the bull by changing herself to a heifer's form, and in that subtlety it was the male deceived at last. Though all the subtleties of all the world should be collected here, if Daedalus himself should fly back here upon his waxen wings, what could he do? What skillful art of his could change my sex, a girl into a boy, or could he change Ianthe? What a useless thought! Be bold, take courage, Iphis, and be strong of soul. This hopeless passion stultifies your heart, so shake it off, and hold your memory down to the clear fact of your birth. Unless your will provides deception for yourself, do only what is lawful, and confine strictly your love within a woman's right. Hope of fulfillment can beget true love, and hope keeps it alive. You are deprived of this hope by nature of your birth. No guardian keeps you from her dear embrace. No watchful, jealous husband, and she has no cruel father. She does not deny herself to you. With all that liberty, you cannot have her for your happy wife. Though gods and men should labor for your wish, none of my prayers has ever been denied. The willing deities have granted me whatever should be, and my father helps me to accomplish everything I plan. She and her father also always help. But nature is more powerful than all, and only nature works for my distress. The wedding day already is at hand. The longed-for time is come. Ianthe soon will be mine only, and yet not my own. With water all around me I shall thirst. Why must Juno, goddess of sweet brides, and why should Hymen also favor us when man with woman cannot join in wedlock, but both are brides? And so she closed her lips. The other maiden flamed with equal love, and often prayed for Hymen to appear. But Telethusa, fearing that event, the marriage the Gianthe cleanly sought, procrastinated, causing first delay by some pretended illness, and then gave pretense of omens and a vision scene, sufficient for delay, until she had exhausted every avenue of excuse. And only one more day remained before the fateful time. It was so near at hand. Despairing then of finding other cause which might prevent the fated wedding day, the mother took the circled fillets from her own head and her daughter's head, and prayed as she embraced the altar, her long hair spread out upon the flowing breeze, and said, O Isis, goddess of Peritoneum, the Mariotic fields, Pharos and Nile, of seven horns divided, O give help, goddess of nations, heal us of our fears. I saw you, goddess, and your symbols once, and I adored them all. The clashing sounds of Sistra and the torches of your train, and I took careful note of your commands, for which my daughter lives to see the sun, and also I have so escaped from harm. All this is of your counsel and your gift. O oh, pity both of us, and give us aid. Tears emphasized her prayer. The goddess seemed to move. In truth, it was the altar moved. The firm doors of the temple even shook, and her horns, crescent, flashed with gleams of light, and her loud sistrum rattled noisily. Although not quite free of all fear, yet pleased by that good omen, Gladly the mother left the temple with her daughter, Iphis, who beside her walked, but with a lengthened stride. Her face seemed of a darker hue, her strength seemed greater, 
and her features were more stern. Her hair, once long, was unadorned and short. There was more vigor in her than she showed in her girl ways. For in the name of truth, Iphis, who was a girl, is now a man. Make offerings at the temple and rejoice without a fear. They offer at the shrine, then add a votive tablet, on which this inscription is engraved. These gifts are paid by Iphis as a man, which as a maid he vowed to give. The marrow's dawn revealed the wide world. On the day agreed, Venus, Juno, and Hymen, all have met our happy lovers at the marriage fires, and Iphis, a new man, gained his Ianthe. End of Book Nine, Part Three Recording by Drew Altschul